Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 71. Glad to have you back on the program. I'd like to start out by saying thank you to everyone who signed up through Learn True History yesterday. We had our five-year anniversary of uh, Liberty Classroom, which Learn True History is my affiliate link for that. And I had a bunch of people sign up to get the uh, books from Tom Tom Woods and also the book from me. So uh, you will be getting your books within uh, the next couple of weeks. So thank you for doing that. And uh, I appreciate all your support. And of course, you've got uh, now a, a membership to the best educational site on the web. So Go out, if you did not do it, go out to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, History.com. Uh, I still have the deal where you can get the one autograph book from me. Of course, just yesterday you got four from Tom Woods as well. So, uh, But you still get one from me if you sign up at the Basic Plus membership level or at the Master level. Um, so you can get that one free autograph book. Um, so I do appreciate that. Also, if you are listening to this podcast for the first time and you like it, share it around on social media. Go out to my Facebook page, like me there, follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube page. Uh, Also, uh, you can subscribe to my email list, which yesterday I sent out uh, three or four emails, four emails actually, yesterday. Sorry to barrage you with that thing, but we had a great deal, and uh, I wanted to uh, let people know that it was there. Uh, I usually don't do that, so you can subscribe to my email list. You get a free uh, audiobook and free ebook, Forgotten Founders in American History. And uh, you, you'll really enjoy it. The ebook is read by me. So uh, please go on out there and check that out. BrianMcClanahan.com. Get that stuff. Get that uh, free ebook. Sign up for my email list. I am going to have some great promotions for my forthcoming book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. So it's kind of a follow up to my n- nine presidents who screwed up America. And I'm going to get into detail on what Hamilton was doing behind the scenes. He's that guy whispering in the ear of power and what he's going to be doing to make things worse for the United States moving forward. And it has everything to do with his constitutional machinations. So um, be looking for that and all the great promotions I'm going to have for that. Okay, so today I'm going to weigh in on Donald Trump and his unilateral move to bomb Syria. Now, I know there's been a lot of stuff out there on this already, so maybe you have Syria fatigue. But as you look at the news today, uh, Trump is positioning a strike fleet outside of North Korea, so we've got another uh, potential military action that's going to happen. This one would be uh, much more intense because you've got North Korea being backed up by China. Uh, Now you've got Russia backing up Syria. Uh, So this could potentially lead to World War III, Um, and I think that this is the problem with our imperial presidency and our problem with our imperial foreign policy. 
I know that people would say, well, I mean, we've got these allies, we need to protect them. Well, the United States didn't have these entangling alliances for most of its history. Not until World War I did we get into this kind of nonsense. And when we did have alliances, after the American War for Independence, we had one with the French, we worked for years to try to get out of that stupid thing because it was going to involve the United States in war with the British. We didn't want to do that. So in 1800, through the Treaty of Mort Fontaine, the one thing that John Adams did, the one solid John Adams did as president, is he got the United States out of this uh, treaty obligation with the French. Of course, Napoleon helped with that, So, uh, but we finally got out of that situation. So we didn't have any entangling alliances, no, uh, no alliance system that would have gotten the United States involved in war in Europe until the eve of World War I. That's how long it took, over 100 years. And now we've got, uh, after that war was over, of course, we, we um, stayed fairly close with the British and the French, but we didn't have an official alliance. Uh, and then, of course, World War II ramps up, or the, the time leading into World War II, and we decide that we're going to again get involved in a major war in Europe. And since then, we've had a massive alliance system called NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, formed in 1949. And that particular... Uh, alliance system has led to many wars for the United States. And it's also, you know, without a doubt, World War II and our uh, defense of Korea and Japan and Asia has led to problems for the United States as well. So well, I've already talked about the Cold War in, in a previous podcast, but what I want to talk about today is executive authority over the military, and at least how the founding generation viewed this, um, viewed this issue particularly when the Constitution was being written and ratified. And I go into this in great detail in my book, The Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution, uh, which you can get um, autographed on my website. So if you want to get that, uh, head on over there and pick that up. But uh, this particular issue is important because it was one of the main points of contention in both the Philadelphia Convention and in the ratifying conventions, the founding generation talked about this issue quite extensively. And I'll talk about Jefferson and Adams because they're often used as the litmus test by the uh, modern warmongers to say, well, you know, the founding generation believed the president could act unilaterally, didn't need a declaration of war from Congress. Not so fast. I'll talk about how that worked. But I am going to give you some quotations from the founding generation themselves about this idea of a unilateral uh, ability of the president to unilaterally make war. Um, one of the greatest fears the founding generation had was a president with both the power of the sword and the purse, but more the sword than anything else. They didn't like the idea, number one, of the president being able to make war without congressional approval. And this was made very clear in the Philadelphia Convention and in the ratifying debates that led to the ratification of the Constitution. It was very clear the president's power over the military was only, only possible if Congress had declared war or Congress had authorized the move. This is why the ability to declare war was vested in the House of Representatives, the representatives of the people, the people who are going to go out and do the fighting and dying. They didn't want a president with the power of monarchy. And if you look at monarchy, 
in European history, the monarch had the power of the person's sword. When the monarch wanted to go to war, the people had to go to war, whether it hurt them or not. The people were the ones out there doing the fighting. The people were the ones who were suffering as a marauding army moved to the countryside and ravaged the countryside and plundered and stole and everything else that they do. So the idea was the president would not have that kind of power because that kind of power was dangerous. The founding generation also worried about a standing army. Now, there were, I would say, probably close to half of the founding generation believed that a standing army was okay. Even Thomas Jefferson, as president, uh, authorized the construction of West Point, which is the United States Military Academy, because he did believe that a, a small group of professional soldiers to lead men, to lead the militia, was essential in defense of the United States. But that's important, an important distinction to make. It was defense of the United States. If the United States was invaded or attacked, we had to have some type of of apparatus for defending our borders. Now, James Madison actually at one point uh, thought that even renting a navy would be a good idea. We would rent the Portuguese navy. That's a dumb idea. But this is how far the founding generation would go in thinking that, you know, we don't really need a standing army. It's something that's dangerous in a time of peace because if you have a standing army, the president's going to use it. As we've seen in Syria, we got the standing army, we have all these tomahawk missiles, we got this navy, we got all this stuff. Well, what fun is it to have a navy or a bunch of tomahawk missiles if you can't shoot them at somebody, right? So, I mean, this was the idea. If you don't have those toys, you're not going to shoot it at anybody. Now, I think that um, after the War of 1812, it was generally thought that, well, we need some type of standing army to protect our borders because during the War of 1812, the British sailed right up the Potomac and attacked Washington, D.C. It wasn't even defended. And people were pointing out that we had a very soft defense there, that the British could just sail right up the Potomac River and attack Washington, D.C., and of course they did it. Our uh, military was woefully underprepared going to fight the British, so it was thought after that war that we needed some type of uh, standing army to protect the United States through, if we're suddenly attacked. But we didn't need the monstrosity that we have today where we have troops in over 100 countries around the globe. Uh, we have uh, no real congressional control of this military because now, for example, we believe the president just controls this thing on his own. The Congress has no say in it. You know, back in uh, 1991, George H.W. Bush actually said that he didn't even need to give Congress a quote-unquote courtesy call when he puts the military into action. He didn't even need to do it because he's commander-in-chief. Now, I'm going to talk about that in a second, but I want to get into this idea. What do the founding generation say about the idea of the president being commander-in-chief, being able to unilaterally wage war, or make war is the term they would use? Uh, now, Roger Sherman of Connecticut said this about the executive branch. The executive branch, quote, was nothing more than an institution for carrying the will of the legislature into effect. That's it. James Wilson of Pennsylvania said this. Now, James Wilson was one of the most ardent nationalists, kind of the big government guy of the founding generation. He, along with Hamilton, in fact... In my, in my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, I reference a speech that James Wilson made in 1785 where he really outlined what Hamilton was going to pursue 
after the Constitution was ratified. So James Wilson is this forgotten guy in American history, forgotten founder, but he's an important founding father because of the fact that he was uh, very much behind the expansion of federal power. He was also instrumental in the Whiskey Rebellion and giving Washington the authorization to march the troops into Pennsylvania and put down the supposed rebellion. So James Wilson's an important guy. But he said this. Uh, he said the British monarch, quote, was not a proper guide in, defi in defining the executive powers. Some of these prerogatives were of a legislative nature, among others that of war and peace and company the only powers he considered strictly executive were those of executing the laws and appointing officers not appertaining to and appointed by the legislator, legislature. So um, Wilson said that, look, the president, the only thing he's going to do is execute the laws. Well, if that's the case, if Sherman and Wilson are correct, then what law is Donald Trump executing and shooting Tomahawk missiles at Syria? Last time I checked, there's no law in the books that says uh, the president is authorized to shoot missiles at Syria. So the president is going beyond his constituted authority. Now, as the Constitution was going through the debating process, the founders were debating the Constitution, I should say, in Philadelphia, Charles Pickney expressed alarm early in the convention that the executive powers might extend to peace and war. So there was a great concern. Charles Pinckney wrote what's called the Pinckney's Plan. This was kind of the forgotten plan of the major plans presented at the, at the convention. You had Madison's Virginia Plan. You had Patterson's New Jersey Plan. But Pinckney from South Carolina had Pinckney's Plan, and a lot of language of Pinckney's Plan actually made it into the final draft of the Constitution. His initial preamble would have said, we the people of the states of, and they truncated that, as most people believe, and I argue, because they weren't sure how many states would actually ratify the thing. So you can't say all 13 states have uh, drafted and agreed to, acceded to this constitution, when maybe four wouldn't. So uh, they, they took that out, but it was still clear that the people of the states were ratifying the document. Uh, now, one of the great fears is that the president would be able to command the military in person. In fact, uh, Gilbert Livingston of New York wanted a constitutional amendment, which would have said the president cannot command the military in person. Robert Miller of North Carolina said the influence of the president would be too great in the country, particularly over the military, by being commander-in-chief of the Army, Navy, and Militia. He thought he could too easily abuse such extensive powers. Uh, now, George Mason was concerned uh, that the president commanding the army in person would lead to a military despot, a military dictator. He said, you know, everyone knows George Washington is not going to do this. He's already proved it. But what about the people that follow him? What's going to happen there? Now, the important part is not what opponents of this particular part of the Constitution said, but what proponents of this particular part of the Constitution said, because that's the important thing. Uh, I often point out to people, the Anti-Federalists, I mean, it's fine to read the Anti-Federalists, the quote-unquote Anti-Federalists, who are actually the real Federalists. It's fine to read those guys. But the real juice, the real meat, 
is found in those who argued for the Constitution because that's the Constitution everyone thought the, that we were getting. So you don't pay attention to the anti-federalists. I mean, they were right about so many things. Oh, the Constitution is going to be abused. Uh, you know, we're going to have this uh, elected king. All that stuff came true. Okay, so we can look back and say, yep, bam, there it is. We got it. These guys were right. We should have listened to them. Yeah, that's great. But the real exercise should be in going back to the proponents of the document and saying, okay, this is how you said it was going to be uh, used, this particular part of the Constitution, but you didn't do that. You've abused your power, and therefore because it was said that your power will be constrained by those who ratified it, by those who argued for it, this is the Constitution we're going to follow. That is originalism. So James I. Riedel of North Carolina, one of the most important men from North Carolina, <clears throat> in fact, later served on the Supreme Court, said this. He said, quote, A very material difference may be observed between the, this power and the authority of the King of Great Britain under similar circumstances. The King of Great Britain is not only the commander-in-chief of the land and naval forces, but he has power in time of war to raise fleets and armies. He also has authority to declare war. So he's saying that's what the king of Great Britain has. But the president has not the power of declaring war by his own authority, nor that of raising fleets and armies. These powers are vested in other hands. The power of declaring war is expressly given to Congress, that is, to the two branches of the legislature. The Senate, composed of representatives of the state legislatures, the House of Representatives, deputed by the people at large. They also have expressly delegated to them the power of raising and supporting armies and of providing and maintaining a navy. Okay, so that particular paragraph is so meaty that I wish we could put it on a piece of marble and tr carry it around the Congress and send it to the President of the United States. This is what James I. Riedel, who later served as a Supreme Court justice said in the North Carolina uh, ratifying convention. And um, this is how he argued the war powers would be followed. So again, you've got the king of Great Britain that can declare war and personally the Army and Navy. And then you have the President of the United States, which has not the power of declaring war by his own authority, nor that of raising fleets and armies. These powers are vested in other hands. And these powers are expressly given. So people will say, well, you got the Tenth Amendment out there, but that doesn't say the term expressly in it. No, no, it just means delegated. Because that would give the Congress some wiggle room and the President some wiggle room. Because there's no expressly granted or delegated powers in the document. Well, it's pretty funny that James I. Riedel would come out and say, you know what, these powers are expressly given in the Constitution to the legislature. Not just implied, but expressly given. That makes a difference. Expressly given. Now, I also did a podcast where it was, it was under the title, I Grant You the Power. You can go back, it's one of the earliest podcasts, where I talk about this idea of granting powers and what that means. George Nicholas of Virginia, who was one of the most ardent proponents of the Constitution the Virginia Ratifying Convention, said this, The Army and Navy were to be raised by Congress and not by the President. As to possible danger, any commander might attempt to pervert what was intended for the common defense 
for the community to its destruction. The president, at the end of four years, was to relinquish all his offices, but if any other person was to have the command, the time would not be limited. So Nicholas is saying, well, all this stuff, you know, Congress has the ultimate control here, and the president, of course, is gone in four years if you want to get rid of him. Now, Hamilton said, well, this, I mean, in Federalist 74, Hamilton was condescending. He said, you know what, uh, th- this isn't even something we should argue about because it's clear, it's clear that the president can abuse this power. It's clear. The Constitution makes it clear. Of course, George Madison, Mason, George Mason, I should say, said that the propriety of this provision was not so evident. Uh, now, it's very clear, I think, from the debates that the proponents of the Constitution, the friends of the Constitution, thought that the president would not have the ability to make war. And this is how they argued. The president would not have the ability to use the Army and Navy uh, unless Congress authorized him to do so. It's very clear. It wasn't a courtesy call. It was required. So when Justin Amash and Rand Paul and... uh, Thomas Massey and others. I mean, I'll also give people like Ann Coulter credit and Michael Savage who have said this is a stu- I mean, what Donald Trump has done is just open the door to the neocons. He has. Uh, he's let the neocons into his foreign policy, and this is exactly what Ronald Reagan did back in the 80s. But po- critics will point out, well, you know, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, they, they used the military unilaterally. We didn't have a declared war at that time. This is very true. But Congress... Congress authorized both Jefferson and Adams to use the Navy to protect American commerce and shipping. And so this is exactly what they were doing. Uh, And the two instances we're talking about there are the quasi-war with France between 1798 and 1800, and also the uh, war against the Barbary pirates, or the military action against the Barbary pirates. Now, you have to remember, an American ship was captured by the Barbary Pirates, the Philadelphia. And so they had to get the American crew back. Uh, Plus, you had the Navy in the Mediterranean trying to ensure that these pirates were not sacking American ships. So we have an obligation to defend our commerce. We have an obligation to defend our commerce against the French or against the Barbary Pirates. And Congress had authorized the president to do this. So even though we had no declared war with France... And we had no declared war with the Barbary Pirates. They had actually declared war on us. The Barbary Pirates had. Uh, It was a completely different situation than, say, Lyndon Johnson or George W. Bush or George H. W. Bush faced in the 20th century, or now, or Barack Obama or Donald Trump. Donald Trump had no authorization from Congress to launch Tomahawk missiles into Syria. It was a completely unconstitutional move. Now, poison gas attacks on civilians is an awful thing. There's no doubt about it. It's a horrible thing for anyone to do. But the question has to come, where was the congressional authorization to do this, and where is the United States strategic interest in this particular matter? Are we being attacked by the Syrians? Last time I checked, no. So this is using the sword. I mean, Lindsey Graham is out there running around saying we should shoot down Russian aircraft. I mean, these people are insane. They're insane. Because at the end of the day, 
There's the other big looming threat out there, not of just poison gas attacks, but nuclear war. And for years, it's been our policy to try to avoid that at all costs. So we don't have a president with the, uni- with the unilateral power of the sword. The Congress has to be involved in this. If the Congress is not involved in this, then the president has actually exceeded his constitutional authority. And I will say this. I have said publicly on radio interviews, and my nine presidents who screwed up America, I've been very clear that exceeding constitutional authority is one area that should lead to impeachment proceedings. So if the president abuses his power, then that's an impeachable offense. And I know that uh, by saying that, oh, oh, you're agreeing with the pinkos on the left. Donald Trump should be impeached. Well, if Donald Trump abuses his, his constituted authority, any president who abuses his constituted authority should be uh, reprimanded for that. And the teeth was supposed to be an impeachment. Now, Again, in my Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution, I get into all this stuff. Uh, I talk about the president, what the president should be doing, what the president shouldn't be doing. And when you look at what the president does today, it's way beyond, way beyond what the president was supposedly authorized to do. Uh Even Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 69 said that the king of Great Britain can declare war and raise and regulate fleets and armies by his own authority. But Hamilton said the president can prescribe no rules concerning the commerce or currency of the nation. Um, The president cannot uh, make war. So the president, the president's powers are circumscribed by the Constitution, and as James R. Riddell said, these powers over war are expressly, he used that word, given the Congress, not the President. So there's the real problem. Donald Trump campaigned like Pat Buchanan, and he's governing like George W. Bush, or Barack Obama, or George H.W. Bush, or Bill Clinton. I mean, take your pick. Uh, Or Lyndon Johnson or even Ronald Reagan. Reagan was pursuing unilateral military action. So um, this is the great, where where we've departed from the president as constituted in the United States Constitution, the powers of the president as constituted. So uh, where did this turn? I think you have to look at a couple of instances, and I'll just say this very briefly. Um, It turned with uh, Abraham Lincoln, Uh, Generally, though, of course, Lincoln was basing his action on actions of George Washington and Andrew Jackson, which is why I have all three of those guys in my book, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. But Lincoln uh, waged war on the South without a declaration of war. He said it was a rebellion to try to get around that sticky constitutional issue, but he also commanded the military in person, essentially. And uh, this is where you had the expansion of executive power when it came to war making during the war, during that particular war. So Uh, I think that we need to hold Lincoln accountable for that. And, of course, moving forward, this is what you see out of the executive branch. There's no doubt 
that the 1860s were a turning point in American history when it came to executive power. So, uh, when your friends run out there and say, we've got the War Powers Resolution in 1973 that says president can do this, yeah, that, that bill was unconstitutional too. Now, Richard Nixon vetoed it, not because he thought it was unconstitutional because it limited uh, the, or, or it expanded the powers of the president beyond what the Constitution authorized. He vetoed it because he thought it limited the powers of the president. The veto was right. His reasoning was wrong. The veto should have stuck. The Congress did mess some things up in 1973 by authorizing the president to do this. Now, uh, the, the question is, do, does the Congress have the authority to do that? And I would say no. Uh, that power of making war was expressly delegated to Congress, and Congress cannot punt a constitutional responsibility to another branch of government. And John C. Calhoun pointed this out. He said the real problem with the president is not the presidency itself, it's the Congress. It's the Congress continually punting its responsibilities to the executive branch, and they can't constitutionally do that. So therein lies another issue. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. When your friends were on Facebook talking about how the president can do this, you have all the ammunition you need now to shout them down, to tell them they're wrong. Of course, you're going to be called all kinds of names, a communist, a pinko, a leftist, a progressive, all these things. But, of course, the progressives are all behind this move. So you wonder, hmm, who's really being the progressive here? When Hillary Clinton and Lindsey Graham and John McCain all support something, you know they're, you're on the wrong side if you're behind them. Uh, so who are the good guys in this? So stick that in your friend's face. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, great. You like Hillary Clinton then. Why don't you just vote for her? Because this is exactly what Clinton would have done. This is how camp, uh, Trump campaigned. Clinton's going to do this. We're going to get World War III. Now what do we got? Because he let the neocons into the White House. So uh, Trump needs to be held accountable for this. He needs to be taken to task for it. He's abused his constituted authority, and he's done something that's very, very dangerous and could involve the United States in a great big war. We can't do it. Even Sean, and now this is also, I know I want to finish up with this. Um, you have Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity, the two biggest names in talk radio for the conservative side. The other day, I was listening to Rush Limbaugh driving. Um, I don't forget where I was going. I think it was on Friday, actually. So I was driving home from work, and uh, Limbaugh was on the air saying, you know what? Uh, he had a caller call in and say, yeah, I mean, the United States, uh, we, we're actually finally being the big boys again. We're showing our force. And Limbaugh, yeah, yeah, we're doing it. You know, when, when uh, these states got out of line, Lincoln just wiped the floor with them. He wasn't going to let people, um, he wasn't going to let people run over his authority. Lincoln was the guy we should be paying attention to. I think it's because um, uh, there was some talk about, you know, where's, where's the punishment when the Congress gets out of line or, uh, you know, the... Um, the states get out of line. Where's the punishment? Rush said, yeah, I mean, Lincoln showed us what to do. Just wipe the floor with these. No way was going to oppose Lincoln and his authority. We had to we had to show who's boss. These people step out of line. Just send in the army, essentially. That was Rush Limbaugh. And, of course, he's been very much behind the uh, use of force in Syria. On the other hand, yesterday I was listening to the radio and I uh, was driving to get a pizza and, and I had the talk radio on and Sean Hannity actually said that this was a stupid move to actually shoot missiles into Syria because what are we going to do? And Lindsey Graham was advocating shooting down Russian warplanes. So you have, I mean, it's interesting. Sean Hannity, the guy that was 
you know, the most rah-rah George W. Bush guy and go to war everywhere, has actually come to his senses a little bit and realized this is a bad idea. So uh, the, I think that you know, we're making progress. Having people like uh, Massey and Rand Paul and uh, uh, Mosh in the Congress is good because at least they're out there saying some things that need to be said. And having Ann Coulter, I mean, she's been actually marvelous on many issues here recently, call out Donald Trump uh, for doing something that shouldn't be done, something that he said he wouldn't do in 2013. Uh, this is great because the president has to be held accountable. Now, he's not listening. He's got too many neocons in the cabinet now and his, his advisors. But uh, the fact is uh, we need to hold our elected officials accountable, and they need to be held accountable to the Constitution as ratified. And that's the one that I talk about in the Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution. So go on out there, get that book, uh, beat all your friends, um, you know, win these arguments because this is how we change minds. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClain Show.